You're listening to the NASM CPT Podcast with Rick Ritchie, the official podcast of the National Academy of Sports Medicine. Hello and welcome to the NASM CPT Podcast. My name is Rick Ritchie. Thanks for taking the time to be with us today. And let's talk about what we're going to be talking about today. So I'll do a little introduction. Um, Today is an interesting concept. And we're going to be talking about drug and alcohol recovery. And we have a guest that's with us today. And she is working with the MedFit Network on a drug and alcohol recovery fitness specialist course. And, um, and, and so I want to have a conversation with her because I had found out about her through Lisa Doherty at the MedFit Network. And so I wanted to learn a little bit more about what she was talking about. This is something unique to the information that gets that is put out there for fitness professionals. And we talk about a lot of things. We talk about um, we talk about heart disease and we talk about diabetes and we talk about cancers and we talk about overall health and wellness and what that means. But this is something that seems to be at least based off of the lack of information that's out there, a taboo subject. And it's interesting, right? So how do you bring this topic up? How do you talk to somebody about drug and alcohol recovery and the fitness related concepts that could help support them in their journey and in their rehabilitation and in their path to betterment and health and wellness in general? How, how do we do that? And so I met somebody and well, this, this person that we're having on the, on the show uh, she had developed this course, and I found out through the time meeting and talking with her that we know each other, and I just didn't know it was her. Her name is Nicole Golden, and we met several years ago when she went through the NASM Master Trainer course, and I happened to be one of the folks helping to facilitate her live training and her live evaluation. So with that said, we have met before. We do know each other. Welcome to the show, Nicole Golden. Thank you, Rick. It's definitely a bucket list item for me, like I told you before. I love the show. Thank you. That means so much, and I appreciate it. So thanks for saying that. Uh, so let's let's talk about this concept, this topic. It's interesting. Like like I said, leading into it, it's not something that shows up when when I go to the big conferences out there. Uh, it's not on ever on one of the session outlines. So when I go through and I say, what are there things that I can learn about and talk about and, and listen about? I, I've never once, never one time has seen this on there. Why is that? It's actually interesting. This course is literally the first one that's ever been put out that put out any information about fitness related to drug and alcohol recovery. I believe it's a relatively new concept. Believe it or not, there's quite a bit of research out there that highlights the benefits of a fitness program and exercise program for individuals in recovery from substance use disorders. But maybe like you said before, it's just sort of a taboo subject. People worry about how do I approach somebody? How do I ask them if they have um, issues with substance use? And I can tell you a little bit about how I got into it, if you're interested in knowing that and how I got really involved in this topic. No, um, let's just move on. I'm just kidding. Yes, of course. Tell us why. Yeah. Tell us why. I know because I'm doing a course on diabetes and I was recently diagnosed with diabetes and Christy Conti uh, is doing one on arthritis and she was diagnosed with arthritis. Now, if you know, whatever your story is, if, if it's about you, because everything else has been based on ourselves, 
whatever you're willing to share with us, I definitely want to hear about it. So awesome. It, uh, it is very personal. I myself have never sub uh, suffered with substance use disorders, but my father did. And my sister does currently. Uh, my father lost his battle to substance use disorder in 2018. He, and I do very openly share this in the course, my father killed himself as a result of a lifelong addiction, which he hid very well from everybody. The course, I believe, is sort of dedicated to his memory because that was really what got me to push really towards working with this population. I will tell you that prior to that, because of my experience having been raised by somebody who suffered with substance use disorder and been a sibling to someone who currently suffers with it, uh, when I was approached by a drug and alcohol uh, rehab facility to teach a class there in 2016, I was the only instructor willing to go. <laughs> so from that point, we actually built a huge program at the Bradford Recovery Center, an entire wellness program we've been running since then. Where is that? Uh, it's in a little town called Gillette, Pennsylvania, in the middle of nowhere. Okay. Absolutely in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Very progressive for a middle of a nowhere place. Yes. So we designed, we started just teaching, I used to teach pound fitness with the drumsticks. Don't know if you guys ever heard of that yeah. class before. Um, they absolutely loved it. I remember the first day I walked into the facility again, thinking, okay, I have some experience with substance use and I'm a fitness instructor and a personal trainer, but I've never thought to put the two together. So when I went in there, I was just absolutely shaking. I was nervous. I didn't know what I was going to encounter. And the reaction from the patients was just unbelievable. Eventually, I came back every week on Tuesday to teach my pound class, and the staff at the facility said, you don't know what you do for these people. Wow. This is the Ooh. only time we see them smile sometimes in an entire week. I have chills going up and down my arm and the back of my neck from hearing that. That yeah. That is such a significant statement. And so the classes that you're teaching, they are... They, they were done for uh, drug and alcohol recovery patients at this place? Correct. They were actually inpatient. And we always worried about, well, how do we deal with people with comorbidities? What about the different substances? Are their bodies yeah. going to have a different reaction to exercise? A lot of that is covered in the course. And um, eventually, we the owner had approached me and we built an entire wellness program, which is nutrition. We offer yoga, pound all different exercise formats for the patients there. And it's been a really phenomenal experience. But what I always wish that I had had walking into that rehab center, and I'm talking, we're working with patients that are 24 hours, 48 hours out of detox. So mm -hmm. I always wish that I had a better understanding of exactly physiologically what's going on. What are the responses to exercise? What do I need to know to modify um, exercise? From there, my facility, we sort of opened it up and became a specialist facility for working with this population. So we allow um, individuals in recovery to come here for free, but we also have personal trainers that work specifically with that population and they know sort of to seek us out that we understand what they're going through. Um, I do. I, I, I want to go back to the story about your father and thank mm -hmm. you for sharing that because I know that you know, that's a, it could be a sensitive subject, but it's something that, that you lived through and you experienced. And it's part of what, what drove you to contribute in the way that you're contributing. So um, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for doing what you're doing. Um, with, I, I, I do want to talk about, you know, this personal relationship that, that you have, because there are 
people out there that have these relationships with people. And, you know, we, we can joke and we say, I'm asking for a friend, a family member. It's not me. And it's okay. Like we're, we might say, <laughs> okay, right. It's not you, but it, it might not be you, but there are people that want to know. There are people that um, want to reach out and speak to somebody and find some way of supporting this process. Uh, what does it, what does it mean to have people in your life that could, because I don't assume there are a lot of people raising their hands saying, I have a problem. Let me come to you for fitness. But there might be people in, in other people's lives that say my loved one has a problem. And based off of learning more about this from hearing this, uh, I know that there's fitness can help be a, a mediator of some sort. And what, what does that look like? How do you support those people? And then I definitely want to get to this because you mentioned it. I want to get to some of the research that's out there that supports fitness. And what does the fitness look like? So what we end up, we end up having relationships in our community with the AA and NA communities. So they all sort of know that we're here. Um, also with our relationship with the drug rehabilitation, sometimes people will get out of rehab and know, okay, they can come to our facility. So people, I mean, and we live in a smaller area. So a lot of it is word of mouth that we're just the specialists in working with this population. Um, we have had people refer family members to us and Believe it or not, you'd be surprised that if people are in recovery, and we talk about this a lot in the course, part of the AA program and the NA programs, what do people, what's the first thing that somebody says when they're in a meeting? You can probably even guess, Rick, what the first thing they say is, my name is whatever, and I'm an alcoholic, I'm an addict. Right. You'd be surprised at how open some people are about their addiction when they come and see you. It's actually part of their treatment. So yes, we can definitely get those people like my father who weren't getting treatment, who are sort of closed off to it, but we get quite a few that will just say, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. And it's good for us to know. The other thing that we do in our facility, and I'm sure every trainer does this, is we definitely do a screening process when we do an assessment for our clients. And a lot of times we'll ask, have you ever been diagnosed with a mental health condition? Have you ever been diagnosed with a substance use disorder? And yeah, of course, there's always somebody who doesn't want to answer. But a lot of the time, you'd be surprised at how open and upfront people are. That's good. I, I think you're you're right. Something that that I know from family members that have been through these programs is they sure do learn how to uh, how to come clean and how to be open. And it's just part of their process that you know they know that they're in a bad place. But you have to know you're in a bad place first. So that's that's important as people are going to AA and NA. Um, that that you and what you do is somehow sort of an extension of that, that, that if you go through this NA and AA, you will be presented with this information about the, the courses or the programs that you offer. So with that being said, what is said at AA, at NA, when they talk about who you are and what your company does and what that means for the people that are attending? So a lot of the time, some of us will go to NA and AA meetings. We actually right. have an instructor here that goes to quite a few of them. 
One of the assignments in the course is actually that you have to attend one of these meetings, one for NA and one for AA, because they are actually a little bit different. So they will usually you know, introduce us. And it's funny because a lot of the people will know us from the recovery center and they'll say, oh, that's the pounds lady. That's the <laughs> trainer. Like they always know who we are. Um, and a lot of times we'll invite them. We'll say, okay, you know, on Tuesday nights at seven, we offer a class for recovery. Come check it out. Come be with your friends. You know, we don't charge those people initially, like when they come in, because we do really very much believe in supporting the recovery community. But the word really does get around. And a lot of times we tell trainers who are wanting to take this course, you have to get out there in the community. You have to let them know you're there. Anybody can attend open meetings. That's a really good good place for you. You're a specialist and show that you support recovery. I love that. All right, let's talk a little bit about the research then, Nicole. Mm -hmm. um, you said that there's research regarding how maybe this uh, fitness positively impacts people uh, that experience addiction. So what what is that research? What does it show? And is there a difference in the research regarding we talked about AA for Alcoholics Anonymous. We talked about NA for those you don't know, Narcotics Anonymous. So there are different types of addictions out there. Are there different outcomes, fitness outcomes and other outcomes like when it comes to incorporating fitness and dealing with these different things according to the research, what we know? So it's interesting. We do cover an entire module in the course that talks about the different research. Uh, spe specifically, there's a couple of meta-analyses out there. So a meta-analysis is when they kind of look at all of the data and put it all together and look for some commonalities. So a couple of points that I can highlight. So one is that, believe it or not, higher intensity training and yoga were most correlated with better outcomes. Oh yes, and running, of course, was another one that was correlated with positive outcomes for all substances. However, interestingly enough, illegal substances such as like cocaine, um, heroin, narcotics, seem to respond better to exercise programs than people who are alcoholics. And we're not really exactly sure why that is. It might be because, you know, with alcohol, its effect on the body, maybe it's not as targeted or because it's a legal drug, but it seems that, and you can't necessarily, sometimes people don't always avoid it and it's not something that's illegal. We seem to see better responses out of those individuals. Um, other points is that uh, women who are in uh, a recovery from substance use disorders tend to prefer and respond better to group fitness, whereas men tend to respond better to one-on-one -on -one training couple of other things to highlight and what we really, really hammer in the course is depending on which substance an individual was using, modifying the exercise or understanding different principles of how to work with this person will vary, very significantly. So a good example of that is when I go to teach my classes in the rehab center, I can tell immediately who was using uh, stimulants versus somebody who is using something like heroin or like what we call like a downer because of how they respond to the exercise. Um, one of the things we point out, people who are using stimulants, a lot of them are very hyper and they, they wanna get going. They are your great cheerleaders in that class. They really wanna go hard. They love that higher intensity exercise. Whereas somebody who was on like opiates, 
may have a very, very low pain threshold and not respond well to higher intensity exercise. So those are just some of the concepts and things that you want to be aware of when working with this population. And go ahead and feel free to ask if you want to dive deeper into some of what I've talked about. Oh, I'm going to. So uh, before I do that, I'm just going to reintroduce you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Nicole Golden, uh, Golden, and she's developed a drug and alcohol recovery fitness specialist program that will be on the MedFit Network's um, education platform. And she's been working on this project for quite some time, excited to, to have this program put out there because it's not something that's talked about very often and it's something that affects a lot of people so wanted to bring her on the show and have her discuss this with us so i appreciate you doing that one of the things i want to ask just following up on some of the stuff you talked about is you you mentioned uh outcomes and you say oh this population this group has better outcomes that's cool, but I don't know what those outcomes mean. What does it mean? What are what are positive outcomes? Does that mean um, like less um, uh, engagement in 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 these behaviors again? Does it mean that they are no longer feeling urges? Like what does it? What is a better outcome? Sure, that's a really good question. A lot of the time, they're measuring outcomes in the like likelihood of relapse. Okay. So how or how really how long they can go before a bout of relapse. You also will learn that about 90% of people that suffer with the substance use disorder do in fact have relapsed multiple times, but the distance between relapse or the likelihood of a relapse. The other thing is the um, also like just how they're feeling. A lot of the subjects in these or the participants in these studies will report um, mentally, like how are they feeling mentally? Are they having cravings for the substance? So we do see a lot of reduced cravings as something that's a positive outcome. So things like that, just less likelihood to return to the substance, fewer cravings, and then just an overall better sense of well-being. And that sort of comes along with exercise in general, but as you're coming out of substance use disorder, even more significantly so. All right, so I want to speak to this for a moment, and it has to do more about research type and research style. Mm -hmm. And so we do tend to put randomized control trials at the precipice of research. And it's good because that is very much the scientific method being put into practice. And Nicole talked earlier about a meta-analysis. A meta-analysis is a bunch of randomized controlled trials. A systematic review might be a lot of information, but they're not necessarily um, RCTs. But here's the thing. the the berated version of so many in research is a qualitative study. A qualitative study, which is going in not quantitative, which is give me the numbers on everything, but a qualitative, give me the quality, give me the essence, give me what you think and feel about something. And this, what she's talking about now is a qualitative study, how people feel when they do exercise and one of the things we do in research oftentimes is we will take how somebody feels and have them put it on a scale, right? And so that's why you'll see a scale of one to five. How do you feel about this? And so now we can take qualitative studies and give it quantifiable data. And, and it makes it kind of elevate what we believe we're doing because we have quantitative research. But it's relative, right? Because it's all based on qualitative data. There, first of all, is nothing wrong with qualitative research. And in fact, 
I think we underuse and disregard qualitative research as much as we should, because when we're working with people and we're talking to them about, I don't know, fitness and drug and alcohol recovery, and they're saying, I just don't know. Uh, I, I don't know, like in, in, in a meeting, there's concern, but when you look at that group and then you put them into a fitness program and they start feeling more empowered and they have more meaning and qualitatively what they're telling you, what they're feeling, they feel better about themselves. Uh, self-confidence is going up. The desire for relapse, the desire for those um, narcotics or uh, drugs, those things are minimized. I think that that's huge. Now, the quantitative data lets you know whether or not that's true, right? So the quantitative data is saying, well, they feel better about it, but do the numbers actually show that there's difference? Now, that's a question I want to pose to you. Are we just getting qualitative data or is it actually showing that that relapse rate is at a decreased rate? It does show that in, and in some of the, there's one of the studies I particularly highlight. It was by uh, Wang et al. published in 2014. So a little, little time ago, but it, it actually does show a decline in rate of relapse. The other thing I wanted to point out is there are some research that talk about um, basically like neurological functioning, which are a little bit more quantitative, where they're looking at function levels prior to beginning an exercise program and then 12 months later. So you see this particularly with alcohol addiction. There can be a lot of balance and coordination problems. There can be um, Wernicke's encephalopathy. So we have a lot of these conditions from the alcohol that cause, I guess, in a sense, like some brain damage. So when it's, they're working in a in like on one-on-one -on -one setting or in a fitness setting, we see cognitive gains, we see improved balance. So those types of things are more quantitative and objective, a little bit less, oh, I feel better about, I feel more empowered. But yes, to answer your question before, there are a number of those studies that are showing that there actually is a decreased rate of relapse amongst the people in these groups. Now, mind you, just like a lot of exercise science studies, these aren't gigantic randomized controlled trials with hundreds and thousands of participants. We're talking smaller groups, maybe like 30, 40. So always bear that in mind. And that's a lot of the time with exercise science, we see that. But even in these small groups over a 12 month period is a lot of the time where they're looking, we are seeing those decreases in relapse. I, I was just impressed with a 12 month period. So months, I mean, yeah. even if you had a handful of people stuck around for a year, it's pretty impressive. So uh, I, I do wonder, and I don't know if you have this information uh, on, on head, uh, <laughs> what was the dropout rate for that? Do you know? Over the course I actually of don't know offhand. I'll have to like pull the studies, be more than happy to post them and share them with you. There you go. But there, there are some people obviously that do drop out in this population. Sure. Yeah, I mean that's a long study, and and yeah. the adherence rate for studies just in general, especially that are going that long, tend to be relatively high. So it, you know, that's a that's a big thing to get that much information. Well, here's one of the the things that we do know is that that especially um, alcohol use, and I, I actually don't know much about uh, drug use and how it would relate to the liver, but I do know that the liver is adversely affected by alcohol use and alcoholic fatty liver disease and sclerosis of the liver. Um, 
is there anything, at least to what you know and what you've studied, that exercise may help with that particular issue? Actually, yes. So some of those studies have shown improvements in that. Also, uh, metabolic systems are damaged from a... Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the time from the alcohol, especially glucose metabolism. So we see improvements in that with exercise as well. And, and uh, again, the biggest thing I think, particularly if we're talking about alcoholics, is the brain function. There's really a significant risk of death with alcohol use. There's a lot of potential for brain damage. So just improving mobility, uh, balance, preventing, and then also we have to think about working with uh, clients that have had prior orthopedic injuries <laughs> because of their alcohol use. So it's more than just helping the metabolic systems or helping the liver. But yes, to point out, I did quote and show in the course, there is one particular study that looks specifically at the liver function and they do see increased liver function with aerobic exercise actually in that study, but there's more to it. Yeah, fantastic. No, that's good news. And you are right for somebody who is working on a metabolic program uh, that alcohol consumption and uh, metabolic issues oftentimes go hand in hand. So thank you for bringing that up and sharing that. So here's my question to you. What do trainers do with this information? <laughs> you know, Are there legalities? Are there concerns? And how can they incorporate this into their business? So when we're working in patient drug rehab, and we do really talk a lot about that in the course, because that's a lot of where you can really make a very big impact and build your business is in these rehab centers, which are more and more offering fitness programming. You are really bound by HIPAA regulations. So privacy, you have to, you can't tell people, like if I know someone is in the rehab and believe me, we've had people that we know in there, you can't disclose that information. They actually are protected by special privacy laws. So you can't share with, let's say like another staff member, oh, I saw so-and-so at the rehab or so-and-so at an AA meeting or so-and-so at an NA meeting. Yeah. And we have to be very careful to protect privacy. Now, if the client wants to share that information, that's up to them but it really is a very sensitive issue. So yes, you have to be very, very careful and treat it as if it is protected health information. Good, good. All right, so with that being said, as you talked about this kind of group of health providers that are working with this, who all is part of that, that kind of health management and support team that, that you are now a part of, right? So you've joined this healthcare team, this wellness care team for the, who's all on the team? Who are they going to see? What support systems are out there for, for people? So if you have somebody, you really are looking at making sure there's a physician, you want to have a dietitian and trainers, we should not be providing lots of nutrition advice because there are a lot of special considerations with people coming off of substances. So a dietitian, physician, often a mental health professional, either a psychiatrist, because we do talk in the course, there's a pretty high comorbidity with other mental health conditions such as schizophrenia, bipolar disease, anxiety, depression. So there should be a psychiatrist and at bare minimum a psychologist on the team. They're also going to have their sponsor from either AA or NA 
And that's a very, very daily critical part of their support team. And then you as the trainer. And the important thing that we talk about in the course too is what is our scope of practice as the trainer, as part of this team? Who is responsible for what, where, how do I stay within my scope of practice? We do talk quite a bit about that in the course because this can get to be a slippery slope. You're not there to be the psychiatrist or the therapist or the dietitian or the physician. Right. And, and inevitably, they're going to ask us some questions, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think I should do about this? What are your thoughts about this? How do you navigate those questions when they come up? So, and we actually provide some examples of that in the course, because it is a really common right. issue. Yeah. But a lot of the time they'll tell you things and you you need to be able to say, hey, that's something you should be talking about with your sponsor or, Hey, that's a really great question for your psychologist or dietitian. We need to make sure that what we're focusing on is supporting the fitness and like supporting those goals without veering too far off into other issues. So you just have to be wary of where your scope of practice is and how to recognize that when it's coming, because it will absolutely happen. All right. So if there are people that are interested in doing this course, I think it's a good idea. Uh, I just want to give them an opportunity because I think some people who are interested in doing this are interested in doing it because maybe um, considerations where they have family members or loved ones, people that they know and they care about that may have uh, or they themselves have dealt with these things and they want to help. They want to help others. And so this might be an opportunity to to maybe talk to to people about the business of this. And I know you probably get into it in your course, but in order for somebody to be into your course, they have to know not only is this interesting, but can I turn this into a business to help actually support people? How is this a business? And I'm not talking, I mean, it could be financially or not, but you're you're developing something and you're saying this is what works. Is this a this is where an individual maybe um, goes directly to uh, AA and NA and maybe some hospitals and things like that that work with these uh, inpatient populations? How how do you go about doing that if you're looking to start working in this with this particular group? So we've definitely encouraged the participants in the. Um, course to do, make sure that people know, number one, you are a specialist. There's very, very few people out there who can say, I am a fitness specialist that works specifically in drug and alcohol recovery. The other Mm -hmm. thing is we encourage people to reach out to inpatient drug rehab facilities. Right now, a lot of them are trying to develop fitness programs and you could really be the leader in that because you are armed with this knowledge. So even reaching out to them, we were working right through the pandemic. We were considered essential medical personnel while we were working at the drug rehab facility. So what we had is a contract with them. So that's a great way to start to build your business. Also, you will get clients as they're being discharged from these 28 day programs. And you can say, hey, this is where I'm working. Here's you know my card when you're getting out. Uh, the other thing is making yourself available, going to these AA and NA meetings, even offering them. Sometimes what we'll do is we'll offer them like a fitness class as part of their meeting or make sure that they know that we're there for after their meeting. The other thing to point out is some of the concepts that you learn in the course, not just building yourself up as a specialist, you will recognize some of these tendencies that individuals have and you will know how to better work with them. For instance, if you have a client who's say a weight loss client, 
I have a client that has to deal in 24 hour periods of goals because I know that this individual has a history of alcoholism, but you may even be able to recognize it in somebody with like an eating addiction, even though the course doesn't specifically cover that you can utilize some of these concepts. So if you have a client with an issue where they really can't stick to any sort of long-term goals, knowing how to modify those goals into 24 hour periods is something that we talk about and knowing how to use some of those AA concepts on other clients, really works. I will tell you it absolutely does. And will help your client retention and help your clients to be more successful. Oh, you talked about one of the studies that was out there where the the female population tended to do better in a group mm -hmm. and maybe a male population. I like to do it on my own. I can, I can do this. I can do this. Um, how do you how do you deal with that? Do you set up classes primarily for women? And then do you set up programming for for maybe the the male um, clients or participants to, to give them something to follow that they can do on their own? How does that work? I mean, and men don't necessarily have to do it on their own, but they're, they seem to be more comfortable in a one-on-one -on -one setting. Also pointing out, depending on the substance, I will tell you in my experience, individuals who are opiate users are also more comfortable in a one-on-one -on -one setting versus someone who is a stimulant user may be more comfortable in a group setting. So it really just depends on your client. When you're getting that client either coming out of the rehab or let's say they hear about you by word of mouth, when you do that assessment with them, and we always recommend that you take a good hour to do an assessment with a client, you have to really figure out what you think is going to work for them. I often will ask them, do you feel more comfortable in a group setting? Do you feel more comfortable one-on-one? -on -one? It really just depends on the person. So we have classes here. Some of them are just for, we don't really necessarily advertise them publicly as recovery classes, but we advertise them within the AA community and NA community that these are classes that are specifically geared towards individuals in recovery. So we offer those classes for them here, but we also have the capability of obviously working one-on-one -on -one with clients who prefer that. Perfect. All right. So this is Nicole Golden, and she has put together a drug and alcohol recovery fitness specialist course. And I do have one more question for you as we start to taper this down a little bit is you said you offer classes and it's not necessarily limited to uh, drug and alcohol recovery, but it is marketed to as drug and alcohol recovery. So with that said, is there a difference in fitness protocols that you provide for people that are going through drug and alcohol recovery versus maybe a general population? Does it change? Do the exercises change? Do what you do change? Or is it just how you speak and what you say change? So this is sort of interesting and a difficult thing for group fitness instructors is a lot of the time we'll go into our classes, we want to know exactly what we're doing, we want to be really prepared, we know exactly what music we're using the workout, you have to throw that all out the window. You really have to have somewhat of a, and if you have questions about this, you have to have a general idea in your head. The most important thing when working with this population is you don't know what you're going to get. And like, as I was saying, and we can get more into that if you'd like, but we may be out of time. So maybe people can reach out. Um, Depending on the substance, the response is going to be different. You sort of don't know what you're going to get. You may have a very high, everybody who was using stimulants in this group is super, wants super high intense, or you may have people that have a very low pain tolerance. As an instructor, you have to ha sort of have a skeleton of a class in your head, but you have to be willing and very able to come up with a whole different plan very, very quickly. So make sure you know 
regressions. If you have a bunch of people that are going to struggle to get through a class, uh, make sure that you know that. Make sure you can change the playlist to sort of speak to them, that group. And you kind of use the warm-up to gauge how they're feeling. You mm. can do a basic warm-up and you can really read your crowd there and know Am I going to have a crowd that's going to want a little more, a little less? What have I got going on in here? The other piece is making sure to give them really, really frequent cues and, and a lot of frequent encouragement. So one of the people we interviewed in the course was talking about coming to a spin class. And she said that the instructor knew that she had substance use uh, issues and would tell her like every maybe two or three minutes, you can do this just a little bit longer. You can do this just a little bit longer. So you have to be able to give those cues and it is a little bit more for this particular group than it is for just a standard class that you may have a very prepared format for. Is there any specific research about pound classes? <laughs> I wish. <laughs> there, there's not, but I will tell you in my experience, that was definitely the favorite. They love it. Oh, we cool. break, good. We break sticks. They have a great time. And it's also a class that's fairly easily modifiable to that group. So you can use that. Okay. Yeah. I have a skeleton of a class. I have a playlist I can change. I really wish somebody would do a randomized controlled trial of pound class. <laughs> I, I mean, that sounds pretty cool. And listen, we already talked about adherence rates and you're telling me that this particular class had the best adherence and mm -hmm. people enjoyed it more. Let's go back into that qualitative data, right? So we're finding out more and more about this. I wonder if the hospital you work at, do you know if it's a research hospital? And if it is, maybe plant that seed somewhere in there that somebody might be interested in doing a study on that. I think it'd be pretty yeah, cool. Absolutely. My husband's a physician, but he said like, you know, so I'm like, come on, let's go. Like, you know, the right people to make this happen. <laughs> come on, help a woman out now. Let's get it. Yeah. Uh, I would love to see what that looks like. And if that happens, that would be incredible. Keep us posted on it. Here's what I'd like to do right now is I would like for you to shout out your course, the platform it's on, and then maybe your social media, your email address, how people can get in touch with you if they have further questions. Awesome. Thank you. So the class is called a Drug and Alcohol Recovery Fitness Specialist. It has been live since March 18th. So it is available on the MedFit Network or rather the MedFit Education Foundation. And we can go ahead and share those links with you if you're interested. Uh, the course is 12 hours. So you do actually get quite a bit of CEUs, some NASM or AFA CEUs, okay. if you, uh, depending on what you need for the course. So I believe it's 1.2 NASM, 12 AFA. Um, so my email, I always am more than happy to share fitnesswithfriendsgym at gmail.com. I have students who are taking the course reach out to me all the time, and I'm always more than happy to talk to you to clarify something. I try to make the course very personal. So I want to you know, be there for anyone taking the course. Uh, also, you can find us at fwfwellness.com online. And same thing with our Facebook is FWF Wellness, where um, you can reach out. I will tell you that the course was not just me. I have a number of my staff that are featured in the course. We're also interview a number of physicians, psychiatrists, university professors. So the course is really told in a series of interviews. It's very interactive. So hopefully right. it hits all of those learning styles. Excellent. Very nice. 
Nicole Golden, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to be here with us, to share your story and your insights with us and our NASM family. So we appreciate that. Thank you. You're very welcome. Y'all, thank you so much for taking the time to, to come into this podcast with us again and just try to do something as you're learning and being a lifelong learner, trying to develop and sharpen your sword and to learn a little bit. So anybody that's willing to do that, I'm, I greatly appreciate the time that you spend when you listen to this podcast. If you do listen to the podcast, I will ask that you also, for whatever platform you're listening on, for you to go and uh, give us a review, give us a ranking, let us know what you think, how you feel. It helps the podcast, it helps me. If I need to get better in certain ways and your reviews show that, then let me see what I can do to make sure that I hear what you hear and I don't hear that unless you give feedback. So thank you so much, everybody. My name is Rick Ritchie. Uh, if you'd like to reach out to me, you can do so on email rick.ritchie at nasm.org or I'm most active on Instagram, dr.rickritchie. And I'm looking forward to, to seeing you at the next one. Thank you so much. This has been the NASM CPT Podcast.